like every single series I do goes way longer than I originally intend to. But when you dive in, you just find so many interesting nuggets and things to bring out. And um, today's one of those examples where I don't want to say rabbit trails, but I guess rabbit trails. It's it's just there needed to be more context, I think. And so that's what we're gonna hit today. Anyways, let's go ahead and open up with some prayer and we will jump right into this. Well, Father, we do pray for um, you to just bless us, God. You are holy. You are so worthy of all honor and praise, Lord. We know that you are the God of providence, and none of these things happens outside of your will, Lord. And it is uh, marvelous to look back and see your hand at work and how these things affect us even today, Lord. God, we do pray that we would be those that would seek to earnestly um, please you in every way, Lord, that we would live by some of these principles we're going to be talking about today, sola scriptura and soli del gloria, God, that these things wouldn't just be ethereal concepts and theology, but that they would truly change our hearts like they did the hearts of these people and, and even a city, Lord. So, God, we do pray that you would just work in our lives today as um, our time of studying history. Just let me pray. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, this is part seven of the series Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage Throughout Church History. My aim was to go from the early Christianity, you know, 100 AD, through the Reformation times, because pretty much up to that point, you know, not much, much changes throughout theological thought about marriage. We are the heirs of the Reformation, after all. When we started, we looked at the Apostles to the time, or after the Apostles, to the time of the Council of Nicaea, it was AD 100 to 325. There we generally saw you know, marriage was held in high esteem, what they believed was, was good and right. They always go back to Genesis 2. They saw how marriage was rooted in God's creation ordinance. They saw how it was even for the benefit of mankind, and it was for all people, not just Christians. And it was a permanent relationship, man and woman, just very basics. Of course, they're under persecution, so they don't have a lot of time to get into a lot of detail. But still, it's really great stuff overall. Then we get into the Council of Nicaea, which legalized Christianity in AD 325. And now that we no longer have martyrs and you to really have this ultimate way to show forth your faith, they come up with this concept of white martyrdom that is leaving behind the good things of this world, good things that God gave us as gifts. And during that time, we have a lot of asceticism, that's monasteries, startup nunneries. Uh, you're even encouraged to be celibate in your own marriage because there's higher things than that. It, it, was, it was a really sad time because it started more and more, especially from this period through the Middle Ages, to look at these good gifts that God gave us and just like, well, yeah, I guess we can't say they're bad. You know, some people would say they're bad, like Jerome. But they're like, but there's better goods. You know, that, that's kind of worldly. There's a more spiritual way. There's a lot of confusion with that. And um, unfortunately, that started around this time and just continued on. By way of, of proof, I, every time I go through this part, I try to show you another resource during the medieval period that more than enough proves this point, sadly proves this point. Take, for example, one of the most widely influential priests during this period, Peter Lombard, and his book, The Sentences, which was a textbook used throughout medieval um, monasteries and schools, and it was a very influential book. It was, uh, Luther had to deal with it a couple times. Calvin quotes it over a hundred times in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, so it's, it's a pretty heavy hitter. Here's his basic theology of marriage. The first institution, that is, of marriage in paradise, was commanded 
the second permitted, so this is after the fall, to the human race for the purpose of preventing fornication. But this permission, because it does not select better things, is a remedy, not a reward. If anyone rejects it, he will deserve judgment of death. So it's like, well, you're not supposed to fornicate, so I guess your option is, I guess you've got to get married. That's what it feels like. An act which is allowed by permission, however, is voluntary, not necessary. There is toleration in the New Testament for lesser good deeds and lesser evil. Lesser evil, I don't know about that, but this is what this guy's arguing. He goes on to say, among the lesser good deeds is marriage. And other ways that we see this play out is, well, the priests were supposed, you know, the clergy was supposed to be celibate. And that kind of reinforces, yeah, you know, the clergy are the really holy people. They're not going to get married because they're more holier than thou art, things like that. So this was just reinforced. This is a very standard medieval view. That doesn't mean it's correct by any means. And as we, we've been saying, like, it's not correct. Um, this is one, just one area, one example where the church throughout the ages kind of steers off course, and their courses need for reformation. The Reformation, of course, was not primarily about marriage or things like that. It was ultimately about the authority. Who has the authority? And, you know, their great battle cry was, well, sola scriptura. It's, scripture is the final authority in faith and practice. So if magistrates or even a clergy is telling me something that does not line up with the word of God, well, guess what? God's word wins. And, you know, this, this sparks a reformation. Luther, tired of the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, he pins an 95 thesis to the church door of Wittenberg, 1517, and starts way more than he meant to start. He just wanted to start a discussion to kind of get him back on the road. Obviously, Roman Church doesn't want to do that, so there's some fighting and splitting, and a lot happens during this time. But it is really amazing to see how once, once Luther really set free the word of God, so like, why is this only for scholars? Why is this, this should be in the common language of the people. And so he was a man of conviction, so he spent a lot of time translating the Bible into the common language of you know, his people in Germany there. And, and it just, it, 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 did, it did wonders. God, God promises to use his word, and this is what we see happen in the times of Reformation. We primarily have been focusing on really the love between you know, these different pastors, these different men throughout time, and what they, not only what they teach about marriage, but how their marriage, their family life actually was, because um, obviously for them, you know, theology was, should change your life. It should have effects on how you live. And we saw that with Luther marrying Katerina von Bora. It's crazy, because Luther is an ex-priest, an ex-monk, and, and uh, Katerina is an ex-nun, and they wind up getting married, you know, they go, well, those vows were made in ignorance. Those are foolish vows. I could break those. Um, no, marriage is good, and there is delight in this. And we looked at some of their love letters, and um, it's, it's great. Um, but this has, again, just much more effect than Luther probably believed it's going to have at the time. Um, one of the most famous church historians, Philip Schaff, summarizes it like this. The domestic life of Luther has far more than a biographical interest. It is one of the factors of modern civilization. Viewed simply as a husband father and as one of the founders of the clerical family, Luther deserves to be esteemed and honored as one of the greatest benefactors of mankind. Very high praise. Um, when a lot of people look at how our Western world works today, you know, usually the best parts of it, they'll oftentimes trace it back to, to things that happened during the times of the Reformation, how it kind of started from there. 
Today, I want to look at, quote unquote, Calvin's Geneva. If you, if you study any history out, you're going to hear the term Calvin's Geneva over and over again. Um, some of the books I'm even going to use quote it like that. Um, I, I, it's not the best way to describe what it actually is. It makes it sound like Calvin's just you know, this new Protestant pope. He's the one in charge of the city. Whatever he says just happens. That's not at all what we're going to see. I am going to deal with a lot of the background of, of what the city was like when he came because they're, I mean, it, it's, it's really hard to find histories that are just not really unfair to Calvin. And I know I'm a Calvinist. I'm going to be more friendly to Calvin. You know, there, there are things we'll, we'll get into and bring up that I'll be like, I don't know if this was the best decision or this, this seems kind of off or this is more in line of a theology that I would disagree with. So I wouldn't have done it myself the way Calvin did. But either way, what we see from Calvin is he is a man of convictions. He does seek to live by the principles sola scriptura. And he doesn't just believe, you know, it's, it's just for church life. It's just something I'm going to do on a Sunday. It's, it's for all of life. This was really the big difference with, with the reformers. All of life was to be under, you know, God's rule. They viewed, specifically Calvin, he calls the world a theater for God's glory, for God's grace. So whether you're a shoemaker, an architect, whatever you do, you can glorify God in that occupation. This was the, the radical difference with the Reformation. So with that, we already went through a, a bio of Calvin, so I'm just going to fly through a really quick one. He's born in 1509 in France. He originally decided to be a Roman Catholic priest. He's very well knowledgeable about the church fathers and about the system he's eventually going to fight against. He wound up studying law in 1527 for various reasons, converts to Christianity, or I would even say Reformed Christianity. It's kind, of, it's kind of unclear. He definitely had a radical change of heart. I would argue it's probably his true conversion at this point. Around the time of 1533 to 34, again, hard to find a lot of details about Calvin's life. He wrote a ton, probably as much as Luther, but Luther wrote, writes about everything. If you remember, he was writing about changing diapers and his arguments with these punk kids on the street, and you know, as well as his arguments with the Pope. Calvin pretty much sticks to you know, Bible commentaries, theology, and he is preaching so many times a week, it's, it's, it's insane. The guy drove himself um, he probably drove himself to an early death, but just with how much work he was doing. He saw the people needed the word, so I need to preach it. So that's what he did. Um, his Institutes, which is his magnum opus, is kind of the, the biggest textbook you'll hear from Calvin. The Institutes of the Christian Religions, published in 1536. And he begins living in Geneva that same year. Of course, his Institutes, he'll wind up working on them throughout the end of his life until he dies in 1564. He's always adding more onto it, adapting it. And the more you learn about Geneva and where he was in the last part of his ministry, the more you appreciate his work. And I think it's one reason his work has stood the test of time. It's because Calvin is definitely not a uh, ivory tower theologian, just up there, you know, with, with his scholarly books, just in peace. He's got some incense going. I don't know what scholars do. And, and, and just writing, waxing eloquently about theology. No, he, he is on the floor. He's on the streets. He is preaching. He knows his people. There are lots of hard, difficult issues coming up to him. Next week, we'll have, or not next week, next time, next time I go through this, sometime next month, I'll try to get it in even sooner. Um, we're going to see that a lot of what Kevin dealt with in Geneva was some very serious issues and, and things not really that different from what we deal with today. Um, it's really fascinating, but just crazy. I mean, it's it, it's, it's hard stuff. He is a boots-on-the-ground, rubber-meets-the-road type of pastor. 
And so his theology reflects that. He, it's not, it's, it's theology for life. It's not just, here's a nice doctrine, and there it is. It's, how does this affect your heart? How should this affect your life? He's very much into that. I think that's why a lot of people look to Calvin and appreciate him when they deal with him fairly. So let's first look at Geneva. I know that map's kind of far away, but that's Europe in the 1500s. That little green arrow there is pointing there to Geneva. Kind of do a zoom in. You can see it's above Italy. Just kind of give you a general area where it's at. You zoom in on it, you can see that it borders France, Germany, Italy. It is in Switzerland. Capital there is Bern. We'll be talking about Bern uh, quite a bit. Throughout Geneva's history, there's several territories and provinces that constantly want to take it over. Like for centuries, there people are always battling for this place because it's got one of the most um, bustling areas in the Alpines, um, Alpine Pass that is, that make it ideal for trade. And so it's always full of immigrants, always full of travelers, uh, traders. Um, I think at this point, yes, at this point, there are 13,000 people in the population around the time when we're going to be dealing with Calvin here. So very busy, bustling city. Rivers are running through it. The Rhine goes underneath it. I mean, it's just in a very important spot. So it matters, yeah, right there, Geneva, in case you didn't see that in bold. H.D. Uh, Foster helps paint a picture of what life was like, what the people were like during this time. He says, quote, the Genevans, in fact, were not a simple, but a complex cosmopolitan people. There was, at this crossing of the routes of trade, a mingling of French, German, and Italian stock and characteristics. A large body of clergy, a very dubious morality and force. Again, remember at this time, clergy, you could buy your way into some of these positions, um, depending on where they were and what city you were in. It was okay for them to go hire you know, entertainment for the night, things like that. Um, or no one would say anything. I shouldn't say it was okay, but no one, everyone turned a blind eye to it. And still a larger body of believers. In this context, that's more talking about aristocrats. Rather sounder in form, more energetic and extremely independent, but keenly devoted to pleasure. At their worst, the early Genevans were noisy and riotous and revolutionary, fond of processions and mummeries, not always respectable or safe, of gambling, immorality, and loose songs and dances, possibly not overly scrupulous at a commercial or political bargain, and very self-assertive and obstinate. At their best, they were grave, shrewd, business-like statesmen, working slowly but surely with keen knowledge of politics and human nature. With able leaders ready to devote time and money to public progress, and with a pretty intelligent, though less judicious, following. In diplomacy, they were as deft, as keen at a bargain, and as quick to take advantage of the weakness of competitors, as they were shrewd and adroit in business. They were thrifty, but knew how to spend well, quick-witted, and gifted in the art of party nicknames. Now, I did probably spend way too much time trying to figure out what does it mean to be gifted in the art of party nicknames? I couldn't, I couldn't find anything. Like, I was looking at the sky and thinking, like, okay, maybe they're at some tavern, some party, and they're like, oh, dilly dilly, that art's a chicken head. He's got the feather. I don't know what it means by art of party nicknames. That was my best guess. That's 100% conjecture. There's no historical validity to that. Um, but the Genevans were gifted in the art of party nicknames. Finally, they were passionately devoted to liberty, energetic, and capable of prolonged self-sacrifice to obtain and retain what they were convinced were their rights. On the borders of Switzerland, France, Germany, and Italy, they belonged in temper to none of these lands. Out of their Savoyard traits, their wars, reforms, and newcomers, 
In time, they created a distinct type, the Genovese. And this, Geneva winds up really becoming a city-state, kind of its, its own place. Even though it's in Switzerland, it's, it's, it kind of becomes its own place, gets its own government. That's why other places outside there are always trying to get them, convince them through different routes. And we're going to see this affect the city and thus affect John Calvin and whatnot. Wilson Walker, another historian, puts it like this. No city in Christendom had had a more eventful or stormier history than Geneva during the generation and especially during the decade preceding Calvin's coming. This is a old, old map of Geneva. You can see the different rivers. There's multiple churches there. Well, there is a, a church of Geneva. There's three different parishes where the people will go and listen to preaching and whatnot. In the decade preceding the arrival of Calvin, it was already getting its first preachers. Um, W.J. Greer, another historian, explains it like this. In 1529, the Emperor Charles V addressed a strong warning to the citizens of Geneva, stating that he had heard that some preachers had proclaimed Luther's ideas among them, and that if this was tolerated, and that this was tolerated by the Genovese, he ordered them to seize these ministers and to punish them severely. Again, this is this is about six years before Calvin even arrives at the scene. So Calvin didn't bring in Reformed theology. He was already starting, starting to come up there. William Farrell, if you remember, we talked about him last time. He's a major player in um, the Reformation, and particularly in Geneva. He visits in 1532 and 1533. He's preaching on and off, and he ultimately has to flee for those reasons above due to Emperor Charles V. He does leave a student, one of his pupils, Peter Verrett. At this time, there were attempts to poison the preachers, and it almost worked against his pupil, Verrett. He nearly died of the poisoning. So there's a lot of, um, don't think just because some people are embracing Reformed theology, the, the city's getting holier. There are some, some uh, shrewd politics, as they call it, going on. Aggressive negotiations. I think it's how Lucas uh, in episode two says it. Anyways, May, um, Ferrell returns a little later and draws up a catechism and a liturgy, a summary of the faith, because he sees that, you know, there are a lot of people from France being exiled because in France they are persecuting Protestants. That's one of the reasons that Don Calvin had to leave there. So a lot of them find their way to Geneva. They find it a little more friendly um, to their cause. And so Ferrell gets, gets working there. Um, there are a lot more sympathizers with the Reformed cause. And at this point, there, there's, there's I, I think it was really the fault of some of these, these friars and, and, and the bishop. He's kind of taunting Farrell, saying, you know, you got, you're preaching this, you're bringing up these documents, like some group faith and catechism. There's probably less than 25% of the people in the city that even care about the reform cause, you know, Reformation theology. And so Pharrell, being a feisty man, presses to, like, well, let's have a public debate. Let's discuss this. Let's see what the people think. So between May 30th and June 24th, 1539, Pharrell makes a public debate. There's two friars that are in charge of kind of defending the Roman Catholic view. And Pharrell carries the day on his own, argues for the five points, essentially. And um, the people are, are very much for it. And... And it, it's interesting that even, even Roman Catholic historians say at this time, the Roman morale was so low because they lost so badly. Like, they could not defend their position. And again, th this is just that basic concept of sola scriptura. The Bible doesn't need to be defended. Just let it out and let it do its work. And, 
and those that are not with it will run. <laughs> you know, either that or, or they're going to embrace it. This was essentially what the reformers were doing from town to town to town, and it was changing what was happening. It's, it, it was really a, um, I mean, recall that the Bible was chained to the pulpit, and people didn't have access to it. The people that did have access to it, they had to know Latin, and they would teach it in Latin, which most of the common people didn't even know. So the word, yeah, I guess, sounds of it in Latin were going out, but who was it actually benefiting? It's, um, and so once you set the word loose, like the reformers were doing, I mean, it just, it, uh, it does its work. God promises it will do its work. Halfway through these debates, the Bishop of Geneva flees on June 13, 1535, and charged that the citizens were listening to false preachers. He, he, he charged that they were, quote, listening to false preachers, renouncing the holy sacraments of Mother Church, and casting down the cross and images of Our Lady, end quote. On August 10, 1535, the um, city decreed that the celebration of the Mass would cease till further notice. And this is, this is a huge thing. This is the religion they were all brought up in. The Mass is taking place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years here, and then it's just, it's to cease. Don't do that anymore. They weren't quite sure what they were going to do, but they were definitely not doing the Mass. Um, again, huge. The preaching of the Word was still happening. Pharrell was part of their... And they, they, he may have not had the most organized church, you know, a, a really profound, deep liturgy, but he knew he needed to go up there and preach the word, and that's what he did, and that did its work. Um, Professor Foster says that, oh yeah, we that part. Um, so we heard earlier how riotous these people were, how, I guess, partying they were, you know, it's a cosmopolitan city, you know, maybe a modern day New York or San Francisco, lots of different people, they do whatever they want, they care about their freedom. Don't tell them what to do. Uh, that's when you'll, you'll, you'll hear from them. So it's a pretty big deal that by the time of February 1536, several vices are forbidden by law in the city. They forbade blasphemy, oaths, and card playing, and then they started to regulate the sale of intoxicants. And in this context, that would be like tobacco and wine. On May 21st, 1536, urged by, again, uh, William Farrell, the town called a meeting of the General Assembly of the Citizens in the cathedral, and there it was voted without dissent for them to live by the word of God and abandon idolatry. They also agreed to maintain a school to which all would be obliged to go, and if the family was too poor to pay for the children, then, then provisions would be made so that they could go. One thing you see time and time again throughout the Reformation is those reformers knew they didn't want this to just be a flash in the pan. They didn't want to just preach these things and it just go to deaf ears or, or stay with that one generation and then trickle off. They understood that these doctrines, these truths of God needed to be passed on. And so they encouraged fathers, teach your children these things. Mothers, teach your children these things. Fathers, start leading family worship. These things need to be, this is, you're primarily responsible for your child. You are, it is your duty. So do these things. They would encourage them to come to church. There were times where they had catechisms, but... The, the town at this point was also required to sit under one sermon a week. And I believe at this time there was there was like 13 total different sermons you could hear throughout the week, throughout the various parishes in the city of Geneva. But again, I, I, I just love the aspect how they, they were they were forward-looking. They didn't want this to be a flash in the pan. So we have to educate our kids. We have to keep this going. W.J. Gear, again, this was a historian. He had um, he was a direct student under Machen, actually, if you're familiar. He writes about Geneva. The reform's cause was not by any means triumphant. 
the Javanese desire to be rid of papal abuses, but they were far from desiring with equal ardor to adhere to the new evangelical community formed in the city. There was a party which supported the Reformation merely from patriotic and political motives, out of opposition to bishop and duke. The city was probably, probably three ways split. Some were like, yeah, we like the Reformation, and they're all in. Another third is like, yeah, we like the Reformation because it got rid of the, the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, we're not sure if we like it anymore because you guys are trying to impose evangelical obedience. You, know, you guys are trying to tell us we can't play cards anymore. Drinking's regulated, so forth and so on. I can't swear oaths, blaspheme, whatever. Dance, have my crazy dance parties. Um, and, and other ones were just always for the old religion. Just like, you know what? Grandma, my great grandma, you know, we, I'm sure we've all heard that. We've always just been Roman Catholic. I don't know. I don't care what the Bible says. But we're just going to stay Roman Catholic. Kind of had that, you know, it, to, to really, that's the very broad stroke, you know, if I can summarize what a lot of these things were. William Farrell himself gives his own testimony. And this is the guy who did most of the, the reformed work in Geneva, even before Calvin arrives. He gives his own testimony saying of the Javanese. They have little sympathy for the gospel, but are still very cold, carnal, worldly, knowing almost nothing except taking the sacraments and speaking evil of the priest. So I guess growing up, you know, mass was, again, if you, you got to remember that for the Roman Catholic system, mass is the center of their church service. It is the main thing. As one pope described, it is a pulling down Christ from heaven and re-sacrificing him anew. It is the main thing. Um, the reformers were, no, the main thing is the preaching of the word. The word, the word, the word. And so these people, that was new to them. They knew how to take the sacraments, and they knew how to speak evil to the priests. I mean, I don't think any place is going to encourage that, but that is what they, they did. Again, it, it was a very proud people. They wanted their way. If their ears weren't being tickled, you know, we, we know how that is. They're, they're going to find someone who can tickle them. So it was, it, was, it was hard work. Calvin was not coming into a place that was just hey, we're already a Reformed church coming here, and it's nice and easy. Everyone already believes us. No, there's going to be a lot of consternation. During the latter part of Calvin's own life, he bears similar testimony, saying, when I first came to this church, speaking about Geneva, there was practically nothing. There was preaching, and that is all. All was in confusion. That being the case, when Calvin does arrive in 1536, at the behest of William Farrell, they seek to adopt to, to changes. They, they want the church to be organized, and they, they want to see how it's connected with civil government, how it's all going to work. Again, the reformers viewed all of life should be under God's word. And so if they have, you know, if they're able to get their foot in the civil government, they're going to say, okay, how does God's word relate to the civil government? We'll probably get into that more next time. Um, I was really trying to get to it today, but just I think we needed all this background. Um, so here, here is what they wrote. Oh yeah, they, they wrote they wrote what it's called articles concerning the organization of the church and the worship of Geneva. Here you could hear their heart, kind of the main thing that they were pushing forward in this reform. Most honored lords, it is certain that a church cannot be well be called well ordered and regulated unless in it the holy supper of our Lord is often celebrated and attended, and at this time. Um, well, with Mass, obviously Mass is the center of a Roman service. That happens every time. Once, once they cease the Mass, the Lord's Supper was only practiced quarterly, that is a year. So only four times a year. 
Luther, Calvin did argue for it to happen weekly, if not more than that. But that was a fight he never won. But he he fought for that for the next 25 years, but never never got his way on that. But still, they go on. And this, with such good discipline, that none dare to present himself at it, save holily and with singular reverence. And for this reason, the discipline of excommunication, by which those who are unwilling to govern themselves lovingly and in obedience to the holy word of God may be corrected, is necessary to maintain the church in its integrity. And if you've ever studied any kind of Reformation history, you know, one of the big debates that came up, okay, they're saying the Roman Catholic Church has lost its way and needs to come back. The Roman Catholic Church is not coming back. Now they're saying, okay, well, they're not true churches. They're denying the gospel. So the question is, well, what is a true church? And what the reformers, you know, from different um, regions and whatnot kind of agreed upon, not not like they were, some of them were talking to each other, sending letters back and forth, but what they all kind of, the same consensus they came to was there's basically three elements that you need to have a true church. It starts with the right preaching of the word, so that the true gospel is being preached, right? If you're preaching another gospel, well, then you're, that's not a true church. That's not the true gospel. It has to be that. The right administration of the sacraments, again, they only believe there was the Lord's Supper and baptism, not all the other seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And church discipline was needed to in, ensure the church's purity, that we're living by God's word. Um, you get to kind of see that those those elements there, and it, it was it was a big part of the Reformation, and it is it is still something. You know, if you're looking for church, these are three things at the very least you should be looking for. So again, this was a very mixed city, um, and so there was going to be some consternation. Knowing they needed more instruction, now there was several things that had already changed. They Again, we're, we're pushing away from the Roman Catholic Church, so they abandoned you know, baptismal fonts. They didn't even want to have the Lord's Supper with unleavened bread, because that's what the Catholics did. So they made sure the bread was leavened. And they got rid of a lot of the special days, you know, or special masses, like Christ Mass and Christmas, things like that. They got rid of because they're like, the word nowhere tells us that you get special graces on these special masses or things like that. So we're just, every, you know, the Lord's Day is his special day. 52 days are the holiday. I'm sure you've seen that Presbyterian holiday, and it's just the 52 Sundays of the year. That was essentially what they were arguing for. Um, we are at 2.30, and I do want to get to the serving section, so let me fly through this. So in November 1536, Calvin draws up a brief confession of the faith. Again, just knowing okay, these people need to learn the faith. And so again, this is essentially a summary of his institutes, just much more summarized. January 4th, the ministers are forbidden to exclude anyone from communion. Essentially what happens is there's other cities, you know, some citizens are concerned. Our army's not that strong with this alliance. Let's align with this group. But if we align with them, they want us to have our church service like them. And it's more Roman and, okay, let's just do it. So the city council decrees it. The ministers aren't even told. They're just told, you know, you can't bar anyone. Essentially they, they can't excommunicate. They can't do things that are keep the purity of the sacraments, keep to the purity of the church. And this is this is kind of where the rubber meets the road on um, what winds up happening. Yes. So during the next quarterly time, when it's time for the Lord's Supper, Calvin preaches the word, comes down to distribute the elements. He doesn't want to be a part of this political game. He recognizes the people are not not, not thinking holily, as he puts it. What, what's his wording? Um, 
And he comes down from the Lord's Supper and bars everyone, essentially, from taking by refusing to administer the supper, saying that the people were not in a proper mood, and therefore it would desecrate the sacrament, which was to be done in reverence. And that is true. The sacrament should be taken reverently. And here it's kind of being used for political-type things. And there was always a battle that, that Calvin is trying to keep the church from falling under the sphere of the civil magistrates and them getting to say what the church should teach and preach. He's saying, no, you guys are in your own sphere. You guys have your own duties. You know, the word has a lot of information for you as well. But, but you know, you can't tell us how we can admonish, how we can administer the sacraments. That's not your duty. And they're always fighting over this. So February 23rd, 1538, Calvin and Farrell are given three days to depart Geneva because the civil authorities will have no one uh, going against them in that case. Um, William Gilbert summarizes the next, next period of Calvin's life saying, quote, Calvin left Geneva hoping never to see it again. He was invited to Strasbourg by Martin Brucer, and he spent most of the next three years there in work that was much more congenial to his taste. So this now Calvin is getting to live a much easier life. There's less stress. There's not fighting here. He preached and directed the French church. Besides teaching theology, you know, these are all the things he loved to do and was excellent at. He revised the order of public worship, introducing congregational singing and extemporaneous prayers, basically just prayers that weren't necessarily written down. They could just let me just, let's just pray. What are the, the needs right now? Um, and laying great stress upon the sermon. Again, the word is the center. He also did a good deal of writing. In 1540, he married Idolette de Burr, so we went over a lot last time. A widow with two children. Calvin had no children who survived, and his wife died in 1549. Just a picture of those two we saw. We saw that great love between those two. There's not much written. We still saw a lot of, lot of, um, the warmness. This, that was the main thing I wanted to go through this series, but we're getting into a little more politics here. Um, and again, we'll get into more next time. But at this point, um, Calvin, Calvin is a, or sorry, at, at this point, the, the government in Geneva, I guess they're kind of regretting their decision. You know, once Calvin and Farrell left, things got even worse. Now, those guys are really trying to organize not just the church, but the state as well, really helped the people. They really had a heart for the people. And so th they said that, quote, they were weary of civil disorders, convinced of the ill estate of the church and of the insufficiency of the ministers. In other words, they at least recognized that William Farrell and John Calvin were, were good ministers and were doing a good job at that part of it. So they invite Farrell and John Calvin back. William Farrell is off doing a foreman in their city. He's digging it. He says straight up, no, I'm not going back to that city. John Calvin, writing to Farrell, says, I would rather submit to death a hundred times than go to that cross. They're referring to Geneva. So he was not excited about going back, but again, he was convinced ultimately, we're not sure how, that it was God's will, and he winds up going back to Geneva. So that's the background context of Calvin's Geneva. As you can see, before he came in to make any changes, there was already laws that were, you know, biblically based, you know, don't do these vices, enforced by the civil government. There was already reformed preaching before he came, and there was, um, what was the, the, the third, third kind of main factor that he usually, people, people say, um, I forget, but we'll look into it next time. Again, why do I bring that up? Because you you look up anything about this topic, this is typically what you're going to get. I'm just going to bring up one example. It's from Roller, uh, Roland 
Bainton. He was a professor of church history at Yale for 42 years, has 30 plus books, well respected. This is not some random blogger. This is a man of high esteem um, in church history type stuff. He says this of Calvin at the time when, when he shows up to Geneva. This is, this is what he says about him. He calls him the arch inquisitor of Protestantism, the dictator of Geneva. If Calvin ever wrote anything in favor of religious liberty, it was a typographical error. So he has, he has zero, he thinks zero good things about Calvin and Geneva. Um, and I think he's really unfair and a lot of other historians take him to task. But again, you, you look at a lot of this history and that's what you're gonna find, unfortunately. So it's important to kind of give some background. But with our remaining time, I do want to jump into, um, before Calvin kind of lays out his newest plan to, okay, how am I going to help this city? How am I gonna build it forward? he has to tear down some things, primarily you know, some of the, the Roman way of thinking. So I want to just kind of read through his confessions at this point and in there. I'll let um, Scott Brown from his Family Reformation book, he, he set this up rather nicely. He says, quote, While the Roman Catholic Church had all the trappings of success, in reality it was fraudulently misrepresenting the teaching of Scripture. It had the cash flow, the applause of the people, and popular tradition but it lacked the moral authority of scripture. Calvin unleashed a verbal fury on the way that the Roman church had harmed the first relationship of family life, marriage. Calvin sought to expose the false philosophies and practices of the Roman system and reveal that the Catholic line was not a line at all. So with that, let's jump into what Calvin says. This comes from his institutes. This is book four, chapter 19. The whole chapter or that whole section is called Of the Five Sacraments, falsely so-called, their spuriousness proves, and their true character explains. One of those such sacraments, Rome believes is a sacrament, is marriage. Calvin's arguing why it's not, and so we pick up from there. He writes, quote, The last of all sacraments he's dealing with is marriage, which while I'll admit it to be an institution of God, no man ever saw it to be a sacrament until the time of Gregory, that's about the 6th century. And would it ever have occurred to the mind of any sober man? It is a good and holy ordinance of God. And agriculture, architecture, shoemaking, and shaving are lawful ordinances of God. But they are not sacraments. For in a sacrament, the thing required is not only that it be a work of God, but that it be an external ceremony appointed by God to confirm a promise, as what we find in baptism and the Lord's Supper. That there is nothing of the kind in marriage even children can judge. But it is a sign, they say, of a sacred thing, that is, of the spiritual union of Christ with the church. If by the term sign they understand a symbol set before us by God to assure us of our faith, they wander widely from the mark. If they mean merely a sign because it has been employed as a similitude, I will show you how acutely they reason. Paul says, one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Here is one sacrament. Christ says, the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed. Here is another sacrament. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven. Here is a third sacrament. And Calvin actually goes on to do this about seven more or seven times total. So I just I skipped over that just for sake of, uh, of the time here. He says, and where will be the end or the limit? Everything in this way will be a sacrament. Right? Every time you run into a parable or something, something is like this. You know, if, if that's their argument for why marriage is a sacrament, then 
we're going to have a lot more than seven sacraments. We're going to have hundreds of them. Who can tolerate the ignorant garrulity of these socks? They wax so eloquently with their words, but it falls up empty when you actually analyze it. I admit, indeed, that whenever we see a vine, the best thing to call the mind, what our Savior says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. I am the vine, and ye are the branches. And whenever we meet a shepherd with his flock, it is good also to remember, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and I am known of mine. But any man who would class such similitudes with sacraments should be sent to Bedlam. Bedlam is a psychiatric hospital. Um, anyways, Calvin goes on and gives some more positive teaching about marriage. We'll, we'll get into some more of that uh, next time. I want, I want to look next time primarily at his positive teaching of marriage with, with some of the cases that came up. Because there were some hard cases that came up. I mean, there's times where a woman comes to him, you know, bruised eyes, teeth knocked out from an abusive husband. And, 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 and Calvin has zero patience for any husband that is not loving to his wife. He calls them monstrous. Like it's, it's one of the greatest things you can be because you're representing Christ. How dare you treat your bride like that? Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get it more into that later. Um, so moving on to his next, I think that there's only two paragraphs left in this whole, whole section. He writes, the thing which, which misled them was the term sacraments. But was it right that the whole church should be punished for the ignorance of these men? Paul calls it a mystery. When the Latin interpreter might have abandoned this mode of expression as uncommon to Latin ears, or converted it into secret, he preferred calling it sacramentum. But in no other sense than the Greek term, that's mysterion, was that Paul used it. In other words, it was a mystery. It was, it was a secret that hadn't yet been revealed. Of course, you know, well, when the Latin says sacramentum, it's a sacrament. There you go. It's a sacrament. Hey, Augustine said it was a sacrament. We remember when we studied Augustine, when he said sacrament, he just meant it was something permanent, something to, to be lasting um, forever. He didn't mean it in the sense that the Roman Catholics, you know, twisted him to mean. Let them go now and clamor against skill and languages, their ignorance of which leads them most shamefully astray in a matter easily and obvious to everyone. But why do they so strongly urge the term sacrament in this one passage and in others pass it by with neglect? For both in the first epistle of Timothy and also in the epistle of the Ephesians, it is used by the Vulgate interpreted that as the Latin, and in every instance for mystery. Let us, however, pardon them this, lap, this lapsus, though liars ought to have good memories. Basically, Calvin's saying, they make such a big deal because the word sacrament is used in the text. Well, it's used in two other places, but they don't go to those texts and say, well, those, those things surrounding that are also sacraments. He's like, they're basically being inconsistent. I'm not buying it. You shouldn't either. How absurd it is to debar priests from a, sac a sacrament. If they say that they debar not from a sacrament, but from carnal connection, they will not thus escape me. They say that this connection is part of the sacraments and thereby figures the union which we have with Christ in conformity of nature. Inasmuch as it is by the connection that the husband and wife become one flesh. Be this as it may, this connection is a sacrament from which no Christian can lawfully be debarred, unless indeed the sacraments of Christians accord so ill that they cannot stand together. So he's calling into question, can you call it a sacrament, and it's, it's, it's a holy thing, these sacraments, and then you tell your priest and clergy and nuns and monks, 
uh, you're not allowed to partake in this sacrament. He's like, this is nonsensical. Like, what kind of sacrament is this? That it could just stand, like, oh, well, well they, they can do it on a spiritual level. Um, and it's like, well, can we just start separating the bread from the wine? You know, are the sacraments so able to just be divided like this? Like, this is, this is nonsense. In the last and final paragraph of this section on marriage, in the last section of the sacraments, he writes, and that they might not delude the church in this matter merely. What a long series of errors, lies, frauds, and iniquities have they appended to one error. He's only talking about marriage here. So that you may say, oh, wait, sorry. So that you may say they sought nothing but a hiding place for abominations when they converted marriage into a sacrament. When once they obtained this, they appropriated to themselves the cognizance of conjugal causes. As the thing was spiritual, it was not to be intermeddled with by profane judges. In other words, once they said, this is church business, marriage has to happen in the church, we're the ones in charge of this, then the civil courts have nothing to do with it, so we can say how it goes and, and what it ought to be. And in doing so, Calvin's saying, they hide a ton of abominations behind this, this lie, this fraud. He goes on, then they enacted laws by which they confirmed their tyranny, laws partly impious towards God, partly fraught with injustice towards men, such as that marriages contracted between minors without the consent of their parents should be valid. That's a great point. I know when, when studying medieval history, I know the kids, our, our kids are going through that, um, or we're watching some old movie about medieval times. It's like, oh, you know, they did dowries, and, you know, the dad traded a pig for the daughter. It's whatever, you know, they, you know something like that. Um, it's probably more sophisticated than that, but... Um, and that's kind of, we kind of just shrug and be like, oh, that's how they did things back then. Calvin was not content to be like, oh, that's how things are. He says, well, how should things be? How has God ordained this? Should, I, should people just be coming into marriage because their parents agreed to it and they had no say in it? He's like, I don't find any evidence of this in the Bible. He's like, this is, this is not how it should be. He goes on. Again, he's talking here about things that they hid once, or things, abominations that happened once the Roman church took this over. That no lawful marriages can be contracted between relations within the seventh degree. And that such marriages, if contracted, should be dissolved. Moreover, they, they frame degrees of kindred contrary to the laws of all nations, and even the polity of Moses, and enact that a husband who has repudiated an adulteress may not marry again. That spiritual kindred cannot be joined in marriage. That marriage cannot be celebrated from Septuagesimo to the octaves of Easter, three weeks before the nativity of John, nor from Advent's Epiphany, and innumerable others, which it were too tedious to mention. They just, they just have so many, just like the Pharisees, they just start adding on so many rules. Don't do that, or that, or that, or that. And why? You know, who knows? At, at worst, as Calvin's saying, it's, it's for them to hide these abominations. He goes on, we must now get out of their mind. In other words, he's been, when, when you're dealing with error and filth and things like this, it can only take so much, in which our discourse has stuck longer than our inclinations. Methinks, however, that much has been gained if I have, in some measure, deprived these asses of their lion's skin. And that last line, Calvin is referring to a famous Aesop's fable. Aesop's fable, if you're unfamiliar with it, the story goes that a donkey once found a lion skin, which a hunter had left out in the sun to dry. He put it on and went towards his native village. All fled at his approach, both men and animals. Of course, you know, they saw a lion coming. 
And the donkey was just so proud. And in his delight, he lifted up his voice and brayed, and his owner comes up and gives him you know, a, a credulling because of the fright he caused. And the fox comes up to him and kind of just smiles and says, you know, once I heard your voice, I knew it was you. And the moral that Aesop puts on that fable is, fine clothes may disguise, but silly words will disclose a fool. And that's exactly what Calvin saw when, when he, and same thing with Luther, you know, when, and the other reformers, when, when they came up against you know, the seemingly gloss and majesty and the gold and the labyrinths of, of the, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, who is this who is this monk guy with a Bible to take on this this institution? Who are these guys? And they go, Calvin's like, let them open their mouth. You'll hear how foolish they are. They're not a line. There's not a line. There's it's 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 a donkey underneath there, as the modern vernacular puts it. On this last point, let's just close with what Spurgeon, who I would argue is very much an heir of the Reformation, you know, from, from Calvin City, you're gonna get the Puritans and you're gonna get, you know, eventually Charles Spurgeon. He had the same view. This, again, is that main principle of sola scriptura. Just let the word do its work. It is, it is, it is the authority. Why, why are we hiding it? Why are we, why are we afraid to preach it and teach it? This is one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes on this topic. He writes, quote, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most, kind, most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. That's interesting. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in his cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology, or in this case, talking about apologetics, for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all of his adversaries. Amen to that, uh, Spurgeon. Anyways, that, that is what kind of part one of Calvin Geneva. We'll get more into it next time. Again, that's the kind of part underneath the 1577 Reformation and beyond, kind of our, the last part of the history we're looking at with marriage. A lot more nitty-gritty stuff to go into, um, depending on, on what I wind up being ready to present next time. I may give a, 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 a warning, like, be careful with the little ears, because there's there's some rough stuff that they had to deal with, um, and it, it's it's part of history. So you know we should go through it and see how how they dealt with these things. So uh, with that, any questions?